source of true delight, my unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Now we go back to the Old Testament. We re- uh, return to Judges after a break for Palm Sunday and Easter on page 205 in your pew Bible, or the book of Judges, seven books in from the beginning. Now, we began Judges 6 last uh, two weeks ago, and I think it would be good for us to read the first 10 verses. We're going to focus on the remaining part of Judges 6, but to get the context again read 1 through 10 as well. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. But whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. At that point in the story, you're not sure what's going to happen, right? doesn't look good. But then the angel of the Lord says, came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. And this is the same description of Deborah earlier when she sat under the tree. So there's some hope now that things are going to be different, that there will be, some, there will be salvation. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at uh, Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite. While his son, Gideon, was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not not I send you? 
And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his, the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull... And the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asher that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerubbaal, That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece 
He wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and all the ground, and on all the ground there was dew. Thus the reading of, of God's Word. Well, we will get to this fleece one. That's, that's a biggie, right? Uh, what about putting out a fleece? Uh, but this, this whole story is challenging because we have to appreciate the particular situation that Gideon is in and the particular call that he has and then try to relate that to our lives, right? What does this mean for us? What does it mean in the context of our having the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, now and living out the death and resurrection of Christ that we've just celebrated in a particular way uh, this past week. Well, I want to, uh, beginning with verse 11, uh, several things I want to bring out uh, concerning this passage and and try to show the parallel of God acting for, uh, for Gideon and then how does he act for us in the same way. So first of all, God attends us and assures us of a good outcome. God attends us and assures us of a good outcome. Uh, He he tells Gideon here two times, he says, the Lord is with you in verse 12, and and then later, I am with you. And this means that I've, I've chosen you And I will be in the middle of what's happening in your life. And I will bring about my good outcome in your life. Now, for Gideon, it was specific, wasn't it? For his situation that God would save Israel from Midian. Very specific. But God's promised outcome to us is also that we will be saved from our enemies as well. But it looks way different for us. We will be saved, ultimately, from everything that opposes God. Everything outside of us, everything among us, everything within us that opposes God. We will finally be saved and rescued from it all. We will finally then be made like God, and we will have perfect fellowship with Him and with each other in a perfectly renewed earth, okay? That's the parallel. Theirs is to be delivered from Midian, to be restored to God and live peacefully in the land. Ours has cosmic ramifications because this is just the picture of what God's going to do for us, what he promises. But here's the thing I want to point out about this. Here's the deal, that God makes with us, you may lose anything and everything in this life in the process. Okay? He promises himself, he promises to attend you, and he promises, assures to you to bring everything to this good and excellent outcome, but in the process, you could lose anything, and you might lose everything in this life. And for sincere believers, that's an okay deal. It is. For sincere believers, 
they, they'll take it. And it's more than that. It's a happy deal. It's an amazing deal that we jump on. Like if you were in an antique sh- uh, store and you happen to know a lot about antiques and you come across this piece and you realize this thing is worth $5,000. So you try to be casual and you're walking up to the guy and says, so, you know, as though you're not really that interested. In so how much is this? You know, and he says, a hundred dollars. And you try not to go, ah! you know, just, <laughs> and so you calmly say, well, okay, okay, I'll pay a hundred dollars. The whole time you're thinking, don't change your mind, don't change your mind, don't change your mind. And when you finally make the transaction, you walk out with that thing, you can't believe that you have it. Can't believe that you have it. That's the picture drawn for us in Matthew 13 of the kingdom of God. The guy finds a treasure hidden in a field, and he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field so he can have that treasure. That's, isn't that amazing? Talk about the sign of God's grace that he could make you trade in everything as long as you could have him, as long as you could have this good outcome, which is going to be being like him and being with him. That's really it. That's what you sell everything for, that I might ultimately be like him and be with him. So that's a miracle of God's grace that any of us would ever sell everything for that. Not that it's not worth it. It's infinitely worth it. But we're so bent in on ourselves. We're so bent in on self-protection and the like. And, of course, this is the opposite of what's called the health and wealth, quote, gospel, Right? in which your whole relationship with God consists of how you can be spared from suffering and discomfort in this life. It really shows how worthy God is, right? He ain't worth anything if he doesn't give me something. That's really the message. You're not holding his hand through it all. You're holding on to the stuff he gives you. (laughs) Stuff equals God loves me rather than Jesus equals God loves me, stuff or no stuff. That's the biblical language. So sincere believers want to be delivered from sinning more than they want to be delivered from suffering. Isn't that amazing? Sincere believers seek to know and trust and love God in the middle of suffering. It's Him we want. Ultimately, we want more of him and we want to be more like him and we want to manifest more of him. I love what Ralph Davis says about this passage at this point. Basically, God has nothing else or more to offer you than himself. Nothing else or more to offer you but himself. As a good friend of mine, Tom Key in college said, all God promises us is himself. So God doesn't answer questions about the details of what's going to happen. He just provides this one essential. And that has to be enough for us, whether we get cookies or not from him. And I'm referring, some of you may have seen this, a remarkable little video of a three-year-old kid who's being questioned by his mother. Okay, So it goes like this. Apparently he had just said something and she wants... Now to catch it on camera. So she says, tell me what you just said. And he looks at her with his thumb in his eye, you know, like this. And he says, 
I, I, I like you when you give me cookies. She says, you like me when I give you cookies, but you don't like me all the time? Yeah, no, no, no. She says, why? I, I, I like you. I, I only like you again when you give cookies for me. Oh, so only when I give you cookies do you like me. Yeah, yeah. It was emphatic at that point. Yeah, that's it. That's the deal. I only like you. And then she says, oh, okay, I love you. I, I love you too, but I, 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 I don't like you all the time. <laughs> So she says, okay, thanks. And uh, I I guess you can see yourself in this. I like you, God, when you give me cookies. I like you when things are going well. And here's the real issue. I trust you when you're giving me cookies. See? I trust you when things are... But when things fall apart, I'm not convinced anymore. I'm not convinced of your goodness. I'm not convinced of your attachment to me, your attention to me, your love for me. Only by God's grace can we be the kind of people that believe in his uh, commitment to us and, and believe that he attends us and he assures us of, of this good outcome. So, also here in this passage, you see how God renames us and redefines us. He renames us and he redefines us. And what happens here is God's presence and his sending of Gideon cause him to be a whole different person. It's really remarkable that you have this scaredy cat, and for good reason, hiding in the wine press, doing a, which would be a poor job of, of uh, threshing the wheat, uh, beating out wheat. And the Lord appears to him and right off the bat says, The Lord's with you, O mighty man of valor. Almost sounds sarcastic, you know, like, O mighty man of valor. It's not sarcastic, but it almost appears this way. Like, how, how can he be that way? Well, because the Lord is with you. Lord is with you, and now, who are you? You're the mighty man of valor, because I'm with you. And later when he says, Go in this might of yours, verse 14, do I not send you? Of course, Gideon is like, what might might are you talking about? This is not possible. And what's interesting is the parallel between this passage and the passage where God confronts Moses. Okay? Really close parallel. And and we're to think of them uh, together. So that... Like here, he said to Moses, I will send you to, uh, that, that you may bring forth my people. And like Gideon, Moses says, who am I that I should bring the sons of Israel out? And then God assures him, I will be with you. Uh, word for word, as in verse 16 here. And then there's a confirming sign given in both cases, and both of them were appalled that they were face-to-face with God. It's pretty remarkable. So there's this pattern. Affliction, uh, the Midianites were afflicting them like the Egyptians were. There's affliction, then there's this commission, there's an objection, there's the promise of strength, and then the sign. 
And the point is that average guy Gideon is the new Moses. Just think of that. Average guy Gideon beating out the wheat in the wine press, least of Manasseh, least of his clan in Manasseh, he's the new Moses. How could this be? Because it's not what you are, it's what God makes you to be. It's according to God's call and God's promise. Both Moses and Gideon are only what they are because of God's call and God's presence. And it's the same with us, right? It's not what we are. It's what God calls us to be. It's what God will do with us. It's how he will use us. It's how he will take our very weaknesses and show strength. Because this passage is all about the overwhelming strength of the enemy and the helpless weakness of God's people. But everything turns around when God is present. And you think what God calls us, saints, right off the bat... You didn't wait, you know, 10 years down. You know, you finally earned the name saint. Oh, good, good. You know, like a badge or something after 10 years of service that you're, you can finally now be called a holy one. When does he call you a holy one? Right out the chute. First seconds. <laughs> Baptized or converted, believe in Jesus. You're a holy one now. I've, I've immediately redefined you. You're carved out. You don't belong where you did anymore. He calls us elect, the called out ones, children, beloved, temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place for God, the light of the world, the salt of the earth, new creation, fellow heirs with Christ, those who will reign with Christ and judge the angels. That's given to you all up front, immediately. This is who you are now. This is how you think of yourself. You have the resources, he says to Gideon. Go forth in this might of yours. God's strength then becomes your strength. See, he has no strength in himself. But he can even say now, go in this might of yours. It belongs to you because I belong to you, because of my commitment to you. I'm the one that strengthens you. And he says this to us in our mission, doesn't he? In Matthew 28, when he tells us to disciple the nations, he says, and I'm with you. I'm with you. And you can almost hear him say, don't I send you mighty people of valor? (laughs) That's who you are now, the mighty people of valor. Because God has taken up your cause. God is with you. God is the one. As he says, don't I send you, the Lord Jesus says. And so, because of this, Paul can say, sin will not be your master in in, in Romans chapter 6. Sin will not rule over you. It will not have dominion over you. God crushes the hands of sin, and with its newly smashed hands, it cannot hold you down anymore. It's just one of the many things that are said. This is the new truth in your life. You can and will become more like Christ. The the time of sin's kingship over you is gone. It's been dismissed, kicked out of office, impeached, overthrown, deposed. You don't belong to that anymore. That's who you are now. 
And Gideon, the name Gideon means hewer or chopper, uh, as he chopped down the Asherah. But he's given another name, right? Jerubal, which means the one who contends with Baal, or Baal contends, uh, has that dual thing that let Baal contend for himself, but for him, the one who contends with Baal and This is the name that we have now. We contend with the enemy. We are those who contend with idolatry in our lives. We will not rest. We will fight to the death. We will put sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit because sin will not have dominion over us. So just the the glorious uh, truth here that uh, God renames us and redefines us because He is with us and because He sends us forth. But then God reorients us, we see in this passage. He reorients us. There is the awe of worship that he brings Gideon to as Gideon responds to the fiery uh, taking up of the food that was put on the rock. As the angel does demonstrate that indeed this is Yahweh that you're you're dealing with. And he, uh, he, he brings about this awe in Gideon's life that issues in action. And this is really important for us to see. When true awe hits our hearts, it always issues in action. Awe and action are brought together. Or I'm going to invent a word here. Adoration always leads to de-idolatration. There's your new word for the day, but don't look it up. All right. Adoration always leads to de-idolatration, the removal of idols. Awe and the removing of idols, always hand in hand. I love what Ralph Davis says here. We long to reach our warm hand. When when he, he talks about how fearful it was, you know, that he was in the presence of God, he says, we long to reach our warm hand through the print of our Bible page, pat Gideon's shoulder and soothe him with, Don't worry, Brother Gideon. God's not really scary like that if you only had a New Testament. (laughs) Right? Of course, in the New Testament, in Revelation 1, when John is confronted with this vision of Christ, he says, I saw him and I fell at his feet like a dead man. That's what it was like. I just lost it, basically. I lost it in front of him and I was down because it was so glorious, so magnificent. I couldn't even stand there. Couldn't even stand. My feet fell out from under me. He was so glorious. And what's really amazing about that passage, too, is this glorious one that confronted him is also the one described a few verses earlier as the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You know, like, put those two things together. Wait a minute. This majestic king who I can't even stand before took on a servant's role and spilled his blood for me. What? All of that, the awesome Jesus Christ, this awesome God that would act for us. So we are confronted even more with this awesome God, his glory and majesty, and that glory and majesty showing itself as well that he would lay down his life for us. And you see where this worship ends Uh, in shalom, in peace. Um, That's the sum total of (laughs) well-being that comes from being in a relationship with God. 
the, the, the adding up of all the well-being that you have because you're in relationship with God. And so his anxiety of uh, earlier has just been eclipsed, you see, by this great reality of the presence of God in his life. How wonderful. The Lord is peace. It literally is Yahweh Shalom. Yahweh Shalom here. So there's no greater good. And so you'll, you'll find these two things always go together. All leads to wholeness and peace. But there really is no wholeness and peace. There is no putting your life together and having well-being unless there's awe, unless there's adoration, unless there's worship, unless we're thunderstruck by the glory and beauty of God. So interestingly, you have to be shattered in his presence before you'll ever be put together in his presence. And that's what we do, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. It's what you do in your own private worship, being shattered by the beauty and glory of, of Jesus and having him put you together constantly. The well-being of living before this majestic God. And then when you adore him and you're made whole, then you begin to ransack your life to find anything that's displeasing to him. You go on the rampage, see? Start ransacking your life to bring it out and say, this is going, this is, it's like getting into your attic or getting into that basement or getting into the garage. This is going, this is going, this is going. That's just what we do as a life now because we so love him and adore him, we just want to please him. And, And it's hard, but it's joyful because we admire him. And it's interesting, you see, Gideon was not allowed to enjoy this little private religious experience and just leave it there and that's it, you know. Oh, this is so great. I'm with God. It's shalom. That very night, that very night, as Webb says, he must act out its radical transforming consequences for his own family and community. We must act out the radical consequences of our worship in our daily lives. And Davis says, he, he, he didn't think that doing this at night was necessarily that bad. Uh, you know, one thing is, you probably couldn't have even done it except that because the men would have stopped him to do it. But I love Davis's comment. He says, apparently obedience was essential. Heroism was optional. <laughs> So, get it done. If it's fearful, if it's under certain conditions, that's fine. Just, just do it. Get it done. So there's no. There, it, it says he was fearful, but it doesn't say that it was you know wrong or wicked or whatever. So of course the real problem here was not Israel and Midian, was it? It was Israel and Yahweh. That's the real problem. Not not this political problem. Not this oppressive physical problem, but it was the relationship between Yahweh and Israel. And there can be no wholeness, there can be no shalom unless the idols are removed, right? And that's the same for us. Um, we're, we're, we're not, God doesn't rescue us from the judgment of, of our sin, the condemnation of our sin, so that now we can freely sin and not have to worry about it. That's not salvation. Salvation is being saved from your idolatry. 
You can't be a whole person if you're giving your life to idols. Now, of course, we're not going to perfectly do that. Our whole life to our dying day is going to be continuing fighting against our, our idols and removing them. But uh, this, this serves, though, to show that as you adore Him, as you find shalom with Him, you're going to ransack your life of your idols as a way of life because you want to please Him. He, that's what He does for you. That's how He saves you and me. And as one said, the, the burning of the Asherah as firewood, it's, it's really an indignity to the female goddess, right? Okay, we worship you. Now we're using you for firewood, <laughs> burning you up uh, to, to do the offering uh, for God. It's an insult, but it's a powerful statement that Baal worship is done in Ophrah. And that's... For us, you know, we need to burn things up, so to speak. I'm just speaking figuratively here. But uh, we, we need to turn our backs. We need to say, Lord, I, I'm done with this. Now, I'm not saying that you will do that perfectly. But it doesn't, you know, just the fact that we're going to make progress, and the fact that we may fail again, doesn't mean for us not to have resolve, okay? Not to really seek to resolve that, I'm going to walk away from this. Uh, The more we have that kind of resolve by God's grace, the more we really will see progress. But it will be a lifetime, a lifetime of doing this. Well, then finally, uh, God clothes us and gives us signs here at the end. After God reorients us with this awe and action, uh, this uh, adoration and de-idolatration, God clothes us and gives us signs. Uh, it says here in verse 36 that, uh, uh, verse 34, that the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Uh, some translations, it enveloped Gideon or came upon Gideon or took possession of Gideon. Literally, it means the Spirit of Yahweh put on Gideon clothed himself with Gideon. It's the same thing of somebody putting on a garment or whatever. Um, and so, in a sense, you see the Spirit of God put him on uh, to, to be his instrument, to manifest his life in you. And, and that's what he does for us as well. Um, we are clothed with the Spirit, but it's spoken of in many other ways in the New Testament. Our clothing, like Romans thirteen twelve, put on the armor of light. Or you're familiar with Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God. Or Ephesians 4, to put on the new self. Or even directly in Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the context of Ephesians 6, the whole armor, it's all about the gospel and the word. To put on the promises every day, so to speak. To put on the power and strength of the Holy Spirit, this new life, this new creation that I have, I'm going to consciously live this out and put it on and put off all my old life. And so we, we have that great privilege to put on our new life that God has given us. It's not as though you have to find it somewhere. He, he's given it to you. You have all blessings in the spiritual, in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1. Put them on, live in them, live them out. And And we, as a people, we are clothed with the Spirit to carry out the mission of God, which is to manifest the love of Christ in word and deed in every way that God gives us opportunity. 
within our families and within our community and in the world. He's clothed us with glory. He's clothed us with his very strength. And just finally, a few words about uh, the fleece. Both signs, really, the the sign of the burning up of the food and the the sign of the fleece. Um, And I agree, some people really take Gideon to task here and say that, he shouldn't have even been asking uh, about these signs because he'd been t- given the promise by God. But you have to be careful about that because uh, in some places, like Psalm 95 recounts how Israel was wrong for asking for signs in the wilderness. But then on the other hand, in Isaiah 7, God challenges Ahaz to ask for a sign. He says, ask for a sign, any kind of sign, anything, in heaven or earth, just ask for it. And Ahaz, out of unbelief, won't ask for a sign. He doesn't do it. He doesn't want to confirm his faith. He doesn't want to think about that. So he refuses. And, and that's the context where we say, where we, you read, and uh, a virgin will give birth. And uh, So a great sign God decided to give anyway. So I, I agree with uh, Ralph Davis who says this is not the absence of faith, but it's the caution of faith. He's hesitant but not unbelieving. Or some have said... He's basically saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Make me strong, make me secure uh, that I fully believe and, and rest in you. And it's interesting that he uses do here because uh, Baal was the god of the storm, but he's also the god of precipitation, including dew. One of his daughters was actually named, this is Baal, the god, you know. One of his daughters was actually named Dewey. Okay, I mean, that's a loose translation, but uh, <laughs> so uh, to disgrace Baal, Elijah would declare to Ahab in chapter uh, 17 of First Kings, there shall be neither dew nor rain. See, Baal will have, well, I'll show you how weak Baal is. Uh, and then, uh, of course, on Mount Carmel later, he, he really did with the fire. But, but at this point, we're going to say, you, you say Baal is the god of participa- participation. Let's just see if he is. It ain't going to rain. You're not going to even have dew. See what he does about that. Okay? That was to demonstrate that Yahweh was the one who controls all things. And, and here, this was right in Baal's wheelhouse, but God shows I'm the one controls the dew, that controls the dew. I'm the one that controls everything. I am all-powerful. And what's so wonderful is that God is not ashamed to stoop down and reassure us in our fears. And you might say, well, you shouldn't ask for signs. But God gives us a sign, doesn't he? He gives us a sign of baptism. He gives us a sign that we're looking at this morning, the Lord's Supper. God assures us with physical things and so David says he's so eager to do that that he's provided a table instead of a threshing floor and bread and wine in place of a fleece. And it's regular. You need more sign. You need a sign. You need the sign. You need to come back to the sign. God loves signs. He promotes his sign. And now we have this, you know, Gideon had a specific command to do a specific thing and specific proof that was a, a slam on, on Baal. But now 
our specific commands have to do with living out the love of Christ, making Him known by word and deed. And it's supported by the abundant proof that we have in Christ Jesus that if He did not spare His own Son, Paul says, He will freely give us all things. You see, we're constantly rooted in that guarantee that He gave us His Son. He gave us His Son. And we live out because of that guarantee in Christ that's presented before us in the Lord's table. And so the table is our proof. We don't ask for a fleece. We don't ask for any other sign. We have our sign. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that has been spent lavishly for our good. And therefore, God will freely give us all things in the midst of the greatest tragedies and the greatest difficulties. He will continue to make us like Christ. He will continue to use us as instruments for Christ. And by His grace, we welcome that deal. We welcome that deal. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we thank You that You are uh, that You attend us and assure us of a glorious outcome. That, Lord, You rename us and redefine us, that you reorient our lives around adoration and action. And, O Lord, that you clothe us with your Spirit and you give us the assurance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, of whom Paul can say, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Oh, Lord, all your promises are good. They're in bold print. They have yellow highlight. Through what? Through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. They're sealed in his blood. They're guaranteed in him. You say yes to every promise. Because you've given your son, you will withhold nothing good from your people. Even if your people suffer the most terrible things. Oh, Lord, we thank you that your faithfulness is sure in Christ Jesus. Oh, bless us, Lord. Make us those people that live for your glory. For your honor, we pray. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light. Come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?